Hey, thanks for listening to the NIL Show, a Campus Inc. production. You can catch us on YouTube, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and on a campus near you. If you're out there interested in being a guest or having an NIL store for your campus merch, find us on any social channel or email. Wunderbar, as the Germans say on this uh, on this pod. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the NIL Show. I'm Adam. There's Sean, joined by Tate Gillespie, uh, Director of NIL Strategy here at Campus Inc., the one and only. This is episode lucky number 13, uh, season two. Man, and are we ever lucky because this last week has been absolutely insane in college sports from transfer waiver, transfer portal, uh, recruiting season open, bowl season, tip off, uh, not to mention there were a couple times, you know, where we were watching the tweets, watching the the announcements, and it was like, snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap, uh, what you can do, what you can't do. So let's let's get into it, fellas. How, how are we feeling today? Are we anxious? Are we excited? I feel like existing in college sports is just a constant state of anxiety um but all, you know <laughs> makes an excitement take take d- 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 is it a little bit more comfortable being not when you're now now that you're not at kansas you're a little bit more on the outside and you don't have to have answers immediately for people that are asking for answers or how how has that changed yeah i, I feel like you know you can kind of I, I was just having this conversation with one of our you know partner nil directors the other day about like how much different life is still in the industry, but not within the school and outside of a school um, where I feel like I walk in every day knowing 99% this is what my day is going to look like for the most part. (laughs) Um, And I feel like I can stay pretty well on track on that um, because, you know, within a school, the interesting dynamic of it is all it takes is one um, athlete who, you know, has a, very particular question or something's gone wrong and bam, there, there goes the week. I think the only thing that has made me feel better about feeling like I can't keep up with everything that is happening in college athletics right now is that I see many of the top voices. Uh, my personal favorite is Amanda Kristovich from front office sports. She's incredible. And I see her tweeting out like a, like a cup of coffee or I don't know, or maybe it was a wine glass at the end of the week. Like we all need a drink because this week was a lot (laughs) and she's covering that stuff full time. So that makes me feel much better about, about my thoughts on everything and how busy it's been. It's been crazy. Yeah. That and one of my other favorites is Ross Dellinger's throwing the whiskey glass up there. Yeah, that's right. Kind of day. It it is insane. And I, you know, we talk about this a lot, but I, I, I think it's important sometimes to step back and like, just, just have a little bit of, of understanding of we are living through, you know, I feel I'll, I'll put it out there. I'm a, I'm a millennial, uh, you know, lived through countless unprecedented times. Um, but chalk this up for another one of, of how it's, it's just insane to watch this industry basically be a battlefield and, and blow up, you know, one, supposedly untouchable policy or tradition after another for the last three years running. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of leadership changes. We all know new president of the NCAA, uh, head athletic director switching around, presidents of universities switching around, head coaches switching around. Uh, but last week we were at Intercollegiate Athletics Forum, lots of sport leaders there. 
the the other thing, Sean, that I'll say makes me feel a little bit better is um, they all kind of felt the same way. They're like, yeah, this is insane. Um, you know, we need some leadership. We need some guidance. Who knows what's going to happen over the next three years? But to, to Charlie Baker's credit, um, he did drop a, a proposal of saying, look, I've got an idea. I've got a plan. The merits of it aren't yet to be seen. But but he he is taking a very, um, I don't know, progressive approach, active approach. He's not sitting back and waiting for the schools to tell him what the NCA should do. He's he's listening, but also, you know, putting out some active proposals. Let's let's dig into that a little bit of what his uh what his proposal actually entails. Tate, do you wanna wanna kind of give a little bit of a thirty thousand foot view? Yeah, we'll go like a sixty thousand foot view. Um, Even better. <laughs> stressing the keyword is proposal. We'll see what gets red. People have already kind of started on the path of the red lines and finding the <laughs> reason, you know, that they think it won't work. I will say this before we get into it. I do like. I've probably been as critical of Charlie Baker as most people. I do want to give him credit for at least bringing something to the table which is what people have been clamoring about from the ncaa for years and decades is they've sat back and done nothing for the first time you know we've seen their leadership actually step up and say hey i'm for you know i have this idea like you said adam i'm proposing this this is going to flip the system we know it on its head but let's at least have a conversation about it so i do want to give him fair due credit on that um Proud I like Tate. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> rest of myself. Growth. Um, essentially, so for those that don't know, essentially what Charlie Baker, NCAA president, uh, proposed last week was a model and a system to allow schools to be more directly involved in compensating uh, their athletes. How he wants to do this is through requiring, um, you know, creating a new subdivision. We already see this a little bit in football where you have your FBS and your FCS. He's talking about creating a new subdivision within Division One, uh, where this top subdivision, he didn't say it, but that number of schools is probably 60-ish to 70. Mm-hmm. You're kind of top 60, you're power four. Uh, where if you want to play in this you know, level, you want to be a part of this, you have to invest at least $30,000 a year uh, per student athlete into a trust fund. Um, and that has to be for at least half of your student athletes and I believe half of those student athletes have to be female to comply with uh, Title IX. So that is the like three, you know, main caveats there of that. Obviously, the biggest criticism there comes on the line of, oh, my God, the typical, my gosh, how, how are schools going to afford this? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but that is a huge door to at least open of, hey, we want to allow schools to have a direct hand in compensating athletes. Uh, trying, they're walking towards a revenue share model, right? Because that is sharing revenue with your athletes. We're walking there. He's not going to directly say uh, ESPN or Fox is involved <laughs> in that, but that's essentially what we're looking at there. Uh, so. And I, you know, I think, I think there's a couple really interesting things for me when this came out. One, the timing of it right before the intercollegiate athletics forum, right? Where you've got all of power four commissioners, you know, a lot of the major sports leaders in the room where he went up, got on a hot seat and was able to kind of control and explain a little bit of, of, uh, of why he wrote it that way. 
but there are a couple of key takeaways for me from, from that proposal. The first is, um, what do we expect, right? This is the president of the NCA. Do you really expect him to come out and say, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, completely dismantle the NCA as it's, as it exists. And we're going to, you know, flip everything on its head. I, I, this is pretty much exactly what I would have expected from somebody in his position. And it's not all bad because to your point, Tate, the, this is kind of the first official acknowledgement of, yes, we will 100% move in the direction of direct athlete compensation from the schools. Now, I get a little bit curious when words like trust fund are thrown around because, you know, what does that mean? What can you use it for yeah. when you have access to those funds? This is also not anything new from the Austin cases, uh, or the Austin case rather, like that, that also created allowances for uh, a, a trust fund. So there are a lot more questions, I think, that this proposal um, creates than answers. But if you can read between the lines a little bit, there's there's 100% acknowledgement of we are moving the direction of rev sharing, and we are okay with it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just I, want to make sure... Oh, I, I, was gonna say, I also feel like, um, is this, you know, my God says, is this going to be the model that it is? No, it's going to get redlined. People are going to, you know, throw back on it. Another interesting thing though, I've seen from people a lot smarter than myself. Um, you know, a lot of the legal experts in the space have pointed out that, Hey, when you start looking at Adam, like you said, throwing words around like trust fund and do athletes not have access to that? That again falls into the category of good luck getting that by without collective bargaining. Um, so I just want to point that right. out that, like, while we're moving in that direction, that's still going to be a hurdle that they're not going to clear by this measure. And Tay, I just want to make sure I understand the proposal uh, logistically how it works out. Say I'm, say I'm Ohio State and I have a thousand athletes, then 500 of those athletes would have to make making at least $30,000 and then yep. 250 of those 500 would be male athletes making that 30 K and 250 would be female athletes making 30 K. And then they can pay athletes more, any of those 500 more than 30 K if they want to as well. Is that a, yeah, am I yeah, understanding that right? That 30,000 per year is a minimum investment that must be made um, per year that athletes enrolled at that school. Uh, yeah, it, there's no cap on it from what I've read that it can, you know, sway and vary based on the athlete. Uh, but yeah, that's a look at half of your student athletes have to be invested um, $30,000 a year minimum in this trust fund. And and not to get too much in the nuances of, of you know, Title IX legislation and stuff like that, but, but Title IX is, you know, a landmark legislation that's really important at protecting, you know, resources and rights for, for female athletes. And um uh, you know, and sometimes it gets thrown around and gets a bad rap because of course, with any legislation, people can, um, uh, people can abuse it, but, uh, it's actually matches to the percentage of your student athletes. So if, if, if 30% of your student athletes are female, then 30%, like that, that funding has to match the percentage of student athletes. Um, if 30% of your student athletes are male, then, you know, that would be the same percentage of mapping there. So um, what, what does this mean for collectives? Because we've, we've kind of created this environment where, hey, man, collectives are the de facto 
marketing agency, the de facto vehicle of payment. They are the mechanism for compensation in this current model. Spun up really quickly with essentially no guardrails. We've seen wonderful things happen from that. We've seen terrible things happen from that. So, I mean, with with revenue sharing, compensation being able to funnel through the schools directly, what, what do you think happens to collective state? Because there's a lot of people out here uh, who have probably invested a lot of time, resources, energy, and professional capital in creating mm-hmm. a collective uh, to to basically do this for the school? Yeah, I think the best collectives, the ones that are run professionally, that are doing things the right way, that have the right people running them, um, they're going to continue to operate and have a place in the ecosystem. Um, because they do like those top collectives that, you know, we, we call you know, the good collectives, they do serve an invaluable purpose, um, in that NIL ecosystem for when you look at how big a percentage of total NIL compensation comes from them, um, they're ultimately, you know, by and large, a good thing for college athletes, um, because of how much compensation is coming from them. Mm-hmm. I think until it gets crystal clear that schools can directly pay athletes even not through a trust fund right if there if there can be how a collective contract is structured right now on a six-month basis a 12-month basis getting paid today cash in your bank account until that you know mechanism is allowed by the school and becomes crystal clear collectives will still continue to exist because that's going to be a need um, that schools need to meet with recruits with prospects that are coming in with roster retention um, the trust fund aspect is awesome. You can't recruit on a trust fund. Mm-hmm. Um, in just today's climate, you need to compete with cash in hand um, and in expectation of roster retention. This is what's going to happen. Uh, so like we look at the Texas A&M model of where they tried to fold that in under their foundation. I personally love that. That's going to be the next logical step, I believe, um, for collectives is coming in-house, folding in. And then what we'll see from that point on is the best collectives then turn to operate solely from a marketing uh, arm for local businesses, activating with MMO partners, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I agree a hundred percent. Like when you, when you look at a lot of the leaders of collectives, right. And shocker, you know, I agree with you, Tate. Um, we agree on a lot around here. Um, when, when you look at the leadership and collectives, a lot of them actually have come from the institution or athletics department, right? And so you, you still have to operate within the bounds of the ecosystem. And I don't mean like legal bounds or policy bounds, but I mean in, in like the, the, you have to be able to speak the language, right? And you have to be able to understand the challenges and uh, the rhythms of recruiting cycles and what's important to programs, not important to programs. So you know, when people expect there to be this 100% firewall between, you know, retention, recruiting, you know, uh, payment, marketing activations, and what the the coaching staff and the athletics department and the teams need themselves, that's just unrealistic because you're saying, you know, hey, you know, what what's our current recruiting la- class look like coming in? What gaps do we need to fill? Like, there has to be an understanding of of needs there. Um, but it, 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 it will be interesting to see that that $30,000, whatever it ends up being, you know, fund is going to be the new floor, right? That's going to be the new norm. And those top tier athletes, those top tier programs 
are going to demand or command uh, something above and beyond that. And you see, you know, University of Utah did this awesome thing. Um, I think it's awesome for their, I think it was men's basketball and women's gymnastics where they got a car for every participant um, on, on those teams. That stuff's not necessarily going to go away, nor do I think it yeah. should really. Um, but that, that 30,000 foot or that $30,000 is going to be the floor. And then you're going to still have to have somebody or someone working on behalf of, you know, that, that marketing arm to activate opportunities above and beyond what that new floor is. So I, I don't think what we see as, as, you know, athletes getting these really cool activations or signing these larger deals, that's not going away. All we're doing is creating a system that says, look, you don't have to 100% rely on all of these outside deals for any form of compensation or, or monetization um, that you can get as an athlete. And for some people, maybe for those who aren't super marketable, maybe for those who aren't really interested in becoming a brand and, and, and uh, doing all of this thing above and beyond, that's a great thing because you can say, look, I know I can at least get 120K if I maintain, you know, four years of eligibility and good standing as an athlete. And that's going to set me up, you know, in a good position upon graduation without having to take on another full-time job of being, you know, a brand and an influencer. Yeah, 100%. And last thing I would say on that too is like, to your point, when you look at how many athletes at a school, the size of, you know, that would have a total of 800 to a thousand athletes or so. And let's say half of those athletes are receiving that. That's way more money and like than they would receive totally. now in the current system of having to go out and, you know, do it themselves or rely on a third party collective to do it. So ultimately, yeah, that's a great thing. And then yeah, the and you guys all know this. Uh when coaches get in the room, nobody's ever gonna be happy with like <laughs> Oh, great. We got, you know, $30,000 is the floor that I can go sell. It's going to be school X I'm hearing is at 70 K mm -hmm. we need to do that. And oh, school Y said that they would give him a hundred K a year, but then they're also going to, you know, pay him cash up front too. So that, and the trust fund. So we're still going to have, you know, coaches that get in the room and, um, bargain, you know, compete against themselves so to drive some prices up. So that. speaking of like, you know, competing and, and trying to get after, you know, certain athletes, let's talk, let's talk waiver. Waivers are interesting. They're, they're a very, um, in the coaching world, they're, I, I wouldn't say controversial. Most people are, are kind of against the waivers until you need one. <laughs> um, and then when you need yeah. one, it's the best thing ever. But uh, Tate, walk, walk us through all this waiver drama or go ahead, Sean. I would say coaches have been waiver free this entire yes. time. Now the players are just getting their <laughs> yep. chance. That's that's a good point, actually. And and we'll talk about this with, with the NLRB hearing as well. But uh, yeah, co coaches have never had to sit out for a year if they uh, <laughs> if they dip. So um, yeah. let's let's talk about let's talk about waivers. Tate. Yeah, I, I can. I grew up the son of a basketball coach, and that resulted in me living in six different states before high school. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's no waiver in place for that one. Um, but this all goes back to a larger conversation we've been having the last 10 years in college sports of like athlete rights that 
NIL is kind of also tied in now with the transfer, um, you know, waivers and athletes' rights to transfer. It all goes into the same argument of if there's an art student who's allowed to, you know, you know, make a painting and then go sell that painting, an athlete should have the right to monetize um, their talents as well. Goes back into the same thing. If there's an art student who wants to transfer to school, they don't have to sit out of the next school's art program for a year or get approved to do it, right? Like it all goes back to athlete student rights. So, um, so this last week, so, this last week, the, the NCAA came out and said, basically, hey, we're not going to enforce our multi-time transfer um, uh, policy, which says, hey, you cannot transfer multiple times and just play. You have to sit out. They said, you know what? We're not going to enforce this. There's a temporary restraining order on transfer restrictions. And, and they essentially said, if you have transferred, you are immediately eligible to play um, for the next 14 days, which was insane. What, what were you hearing from like people within your, your, uh, your little circle of trust NIL directors were, were people's hair was people's hair on fire. Like what, what was happening when all of a sudden the NCAA says yeah. eh, next two weeks, do whatever you guys want. Well, it was a little, um, scary is probably the best word I could put at it because at that first time there was no clear indicator. They said, no, you know, you could still lose a year of eligibility. If you play within those two weeks, um, we could still nail you after this temporary restraining order is over. So there was a lot of risk and there's a lot of people that were scared to do it. I did see a couple of schools that kind of said, you know what? No, no, that we're doing it anyways. We're playing our guys. We're playing our girls that, you know, they've earned this right. They've sat out. Um, we're already into the season. We're going to go put them out there. But that was the biggest, you know, feeling that I kept hearing out there was, okay, yeah, the next two weeks are open, but you're also telling me that, while in these two weeks we don't have rules, you could retroactively go back and, you know, take a year away from them. So that was the biggest um, feeling that I kept getting was like, hey, it was great, but like, man, we're doing this in the middle of the season and yeah. you're not giving us any further guidance. And how can the NCAA basically say, look, we're not going to enforce our policy for 14 days, but just so you know, after those 14 days, we will retroactively, like, isn't that entrapment as a governing body? How can you maintain any sort of trust from your member institutions by baiting them into violating policies in, in a window where there's a restraining order, you can't do anything about it, but then warning them, Oh, we're, we're going to get you later though. Like how, what I, I as an athletic director, as a student athlete, as anybody who's in the system, I'm like, what? How can I trust you with anything moving forward? How how does the NCAA see a way out of just absolutely cutting the knees out from under that much trust with their member institutions? I feel like that trust has been gone for quite a while. Yeah, well, and 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 on the NCAA side, don't they see like they don't agree with the hearing that with the ruling here. And so they're still holding on to these hearings thinking that perhaps their way will still happen. And so maybe that's why they're still threatening. I, I don't know. I, yeah, they're, they're holding out hope that eventually they'll find a needle in the haystack of a judge or a legal expert that actually agrees with them and says what you're doing is okay. And uh, that that's a pipe dream. There's yet to be one that's taken a hard look at it and said, <laughs> Hey, that's okay. That, that's legally allowed. No, then that's not going to happen. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, there's a lot of precedent that's starting to get stacked up here. That's going to mm -hmm. be, you know, every day that goes by, it becomes increasingly difficult to go against that precedent for some of the things that, that the NCAA has, has put into practices. I will say before I, we transition I, on that onto the next topic that it was pretty cool. Some of the stories that came out from the players who were sitting, who thought they had to sit out, who got the yeah. play over the last two weeks. We saw uh, our guy, Andre Curbelo, uh, Illinois guy, who was one of the first ever Illinois NIL store athletes who transferred to St. John's. Now he's at St. Uh, Southern Miss. So it was cool to see him. And uh, I have some other friends around the country who uh, work for teams and they had some players who they thought they weren't playing this year. They had transferred for mental health reasons or whatever it was. And now they have their opportunity. So pretty cool. Um, I've always thought if, if a coach can freely go wherever they want, probably should let the players do that or else maybe they are employees, which yes. leads maybe as a nice transition to the NLRB hearings, which you can touch on, Adam. Yeah, so so that, that's that's exactly right. And in a lot of the crux of what this conversation is, there's a, there's a hearing right now at the uh, National Labor Relations Board where um, this is essentially the hinge point of whether or not athletes should be or will be deemed as employees. And there's a, a little bit of context here. So the thing that's important to remember about all of these NIL conversations is these are, we're approaching actually a decade of legislation and policy change and adjustment um, on NIL. This, this isn't new. The newest part is basically 2021, where the NCAA permitted athletes to actually exercise rights, and this is important, that they already had. So the, the crux of this conversation was the NCAA had policies restricting athletes from exercising rights to monetize their name, image, and likeness, which is illegal. That, that is the antitrust thing. You cannot restrict somebody uh, from exercising rights that they are, are granted federally. Um, so as the last couple of years have progressed, we are increasingly moving towards, okay, how much are you restricting us, number one, but number two, how much are you not providing for us that you should um, if, you are, if this relationship between student athletes and institutions is deemed more as an employee and employer relationship versus you know, an institution and a member of that institution relationship as a student. So- there's a, a, a number of things and there's a test that the NLRB uh, runs through. Um, you know, Mitt talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but a couple of those criteria are like how much is required, how much control um, does the, the um, overarching institution have over the schedule, travel, expectations, uh, time spent of um, uh, a, a, a perceived employee, how much... Um, uh, how much is required of them in terms of participation versus not participation. And a lot of this uh, hearing kind of revolved around, it was funny kind of watching some of the, the lawyers make the arguments that college sports are much more like an extracurricular activity than they are a, um, uh, you know, a requirement. And my question to the panel with us today um, since we've all been intimately tied to, to college athletics, Tate, um, when you were playing <laughs> baseball and you had a film session or, you know, you were a pitcher, so you had a bullpen day, that was pretty optional, right? You could be like, you know what, yeah. 
this is an extracurricular. I, I'm a little busy today. I got to run to the mall, run some errands, drop some stuff off at the post office. It was like an optional activity for you, right? Yeah, typically I'd be like, hey, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm really tired today. I'm kind of sore or like, man, I really need to study for this, uh, you know, this test or I need to go home and, you know, see family. Yeah, it was totally understandable. No, anybody that says college sports uh, is, and I don't care if you're division one, division two, three, NAI, junior college does not matter. It's all the same. Anybody who calls that an extracurricular activity. Um, Either you didn't play or I don't know, you know, what your experience was like, because that was not mine as a player. And that's not what I saw our athletes go through. Um, so, I can't so a next, uh, yeah, I, I don't know any, any athlete that, that feels like, oh yeah, I didn't feel any pressure to participate at all. The, the next question to me then is, cause this was another, another uh, piece that was brought up was like, well, participation, you don't have to do that. Like you can choose to not play your sport, which again, valid. Um, you can also not choose to work any job, but there are things like bills. There are things like rent and uh, the consequential factor of food, uh, you know, that you have to pay for. Um, a lot of athletes are on scholarship and wouldn't otherwise be able to afford attending an institution of higher education without this sports scholarship. So did you feel, sorry to put you on the spot here, Tate at all. Uh, but did you feel any, any, you know, pressure to maintain your scholarship and perform at a high level so that you could actually stay in school and get your degree at all? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I knew that, you know, I probably wouldn't go to school or graduate without being, um, an athlete. So I knew I had to maintain that level of performance. Um, and I actually, you know, at my first school I went to, I lost my scholarship because I got injured. And so I lost my scholarship, which forced me to have to transfer um, to another school because I got injured. You know, I wasn't, I didn't get injured skateboarding, you know, around the <laughs> line. I got injured playing for my school, for my team. Um, and because of that injury, it, I lost my scholarship at that school. Um, and so I was like, okay. I have to go, you know, continue playing because I need to graduate. Right. Um, and you can't, I always say this, you can't have it both ways in the sense of, you know, for decades, their argument against, you know, cash compensation to athletes was, well, the scholarship is, you know, super valuable, but you know, that's, you know, of so much value. It's a great value is how much we're giving you in a scholarship and room and board and a free education. Right. That was the main argument against it. But then you can't turn around and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You didn't need it. You didn't have to play. Uh, yeah. You can't have it both ways on that front. Yeah. And, and I think this is, you know, I, I'm not fully convinced, to be fair. I'm not fully convinced that um, employee status is the best route. Just, just putting it out there. Not fully convinced yet. Um, but I understand why the conversation is is being had. And, you know, for the layman who's out there and, maybe hasn't dug into this a ton. This path is very complicated because again, you're dealing with interstate competition. We've already talked about transfers, which, you know, based on our government system, each state has different employability laws and different laws that govern in the employee employer relationship. And so this isn't just a blanket thing that you can say, call them employees. And it's, it's the end of the day. Um, 
but but it is an interesting uh, kind of conversation around all of the things that come with being classified as an employee, meaning, um, you know, the ability to collectively bargain, the ability to form unions, um, the ability to, you know, have guaranteed payment and things like this. Uh, but, but another large conversation around the employment status is saying, okay, so how do other sports fit into this or, or, or how does this impact the broader, um, varsity sport ecosystem if we do go down the path of employability and you're having to, uh, meet the expectations of an employee employer relationship for sports like football and also meet the employee employer relationship for sports like men's volleyball. Uh, we, you know, we know women's volleyball is, is, is great and growing, but you know, men's volleyball or, uh, track and field. Um, do you see colleges getting kind of backed into a corner of cutting sports if we go down this path? Certainly my greatest fear when I look at it, I, I, I think that when we were talking about Charlie Baker's proposal, and I was kind of laying out the amount of athletes that are at schools. When you look at a school like Ohio State that has a thousand athletes, it's a lot of athletes that you're going to end up having to pay. So cutting sports to me sounds like a very real thing that people would have to acknowledge, which, which is not what you want. That, that, that's terrible. Yeah. That's certainly the last thing you would want to have happen. I mean, like I was a baseball player. There's a lot of schools that would, you know, they would love to cut baseball, right? Because it's an expensive sport. My wife was a soccer player. So coming from the vantage point of two of those sports that would be, you know, potentially at risk, right, in this new model. So, um, you know, it's definitely a soft spot for me and one that I feel very strongly about. Um, I also think, though, it's just a matter of having to take a look at where resources are going, where spending is going um, for some of these schools, because we've seen for years the facility spending get just out of control, inflated, ballooned, because frankly, and same with coaches' salaries, because they had nothing else to spend it on. So they're like, who needs a new lounge, a new locker room with a pull-out mattress in the locker? Barbershop. Right, like let's put everything <laughs> in there and let's blow coaches' salaries up to be the highest paid employees in the state. And frankly, it just went unchecked for so long that now when you're talking NIL diverting resources away, if it is employee status um, and having school to athlete direct compensation, maybe, you know, this is probably wishful thinking on my part. Maybe that's a natural market correction that needs to happen. And it's a more diversification of resources uh, that these schools are going to have to do. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at a number of years ago and they've, they've, uh, Alabama's athletic director made it very clear that they have since removed it. But a number of years ago, you know, they put a water feature in, in the locker room, football locker room at, at Alabama. And like a, a lot of this employee conversation and a lot of, you know, Charlie Baker's proposal and what, what lobbyists are doing on Capitol Hill is saying, look, this is all well and good. Sure. Let's make sure we compensate athletes, but man, we need to put a cap on this, right? We need to actually uh, put some things in place that can stop the bleeding financially for us because this can get out of hand really quickly. And I would say that's another example where you got to look at that and say, you're talking about both sides of your mouth or out of both sides of your mouth. Where's, where's the cap on coaches spending? Where's the cap on facility spending? Where's the cap on all of these other uh you know, upgrades and things you're doing across campus. 
And, you know, there's a great article on Sportico. If you, if you haven't read it, I would recommend reading it by Michael McCann, who says, you know, when you really start to look at some of this stuff, um, you know, schools are getting dangerously close to tax fraud and, and claiming, you know, nonprofit exemption from a lot of these things while also paying an absolutely insane amount of money for stuff that no nonprofit in good faith would would, would do. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll close with this. But um, his his warning is when you start to open up Pandora's box a little bit and you start to go to Capitol Hill and start lobbying all this stuff and uh, making claims about uh, what you should be able to do and what you shouldn't be able to do and protections you should have based on the current ecosystem, you got to be careful because you never know who you're going to encourage to start poking and prodding under the hood more than maybe you would like them to. So uh, it's going to be a really interesting I don't know. How, how many years do you think this is going to go on? Uh, wh- when do we start to see some resolution from this? Well, it's, it, you know, it's going to be appeal after appeal after appeal and um, lawyers get paid hourly. So they'll, they'll drag this out. <laughs> what, what's the name of the UCLA quarterback, Chase? Uh, Griffin. Griffin. Chase Griffin. Chase Griffin. He's going to be president of the United States by the time uh, all this finally goes through. Hey, I man. hope he I, I hope he's president of the NCAA too while he's at it. I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I don't know how much we solved. Uh, you know, we definitely didn't solve any of the world's problems. Probably didn't solve any of the NCAA's problems. But man, did we have fun doing it. Um, I hope you all did as well listening here. Uh, I'm Adam. There's Sean. That's Tate Gillespie. This is another episode of the NIO Show. We will catch you guys next week. Hi, everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. want to say real quickly, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any custom merchandise, youth jerseys, camp t-shirts, whatever it may be, you can always find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store. We're going to jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy.